not Ezekiel 16, because I'm not. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 16, we're going to be reading in uh, verses 1 and then all the way down through 34. So it's a lengthy passage. Hang with me, and I have to give you a little context before we jump into it. Of course, we're going through our series, The Love of God, God's Love Displayed Through Christ. Last week, we jumped into Romans 5, and what we saw is that God's love is not just this experiential thing unhinged from some objective truth. What we've seen is that God has demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us, his love has been put on display objectively for us so that when we don't experience, we have something to look to. We have an anchor, so to speak, to, to kind of hold upon when it comes to understanding God's love. But this morning what we're doing is we're doing something a little different. We're actually going to kind of, kind of peer into the window of God's own emotional life. Do you know that God is an emotional being? He feels pain as we might feel pain. He, he exercises love as we might. He, he, he experiences the vulnerability of all those emotions on some level. And so Ezekiel 16 portrays just that. Of course, Ezekiel, this might feel like an obscure passage. Ezekiel is... Uh, an Old Testament prophet. During this time, God's people have um, kind of been judged by God in that the Babylonians have, have taken over. They've, they've seized Jerusalem and have taken a good number of people, Hebrew people, out of, out of um, the area there and have enslaved them in Babylon. Ezekiel is one of those individuals. And so right now, they're kind of encamped in what we would understand as like a refugee camp. They're hanging out on the Kabar River, and it's here that Ezekiel is commissioned by God to be a prophet, to be God's mouthpiece to his people. And so there is strange stuff in the book of Ezekiel. Um, but as God's mouthpiece... Ezekiel is, is addressing God's people. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them back to the love of God, to find satisfaction in God's love. So if you'd ever read through the book of Ezekiel, you're going to see some very strange things. It's not only that God is using Ezekiel to declare these truths to God's people, but he's also, he does like street theater almost. Like he acts this stuff out. So for like a year, he's laying on his left side, bound up in rope, uh, eating food off of food that's been cooked from, this is crazy, dried human excrement, all right? And so it's just, it's strange stuff, but 390 days laying on his side, all to depict the suffering that God's people will go through as a judgment upon them for their rebellion against God. And so the call then is to say, go back after God, repent and get after God, right? So not only does he perhaps proclaims something of these truths through stuff like street theater, but he also uses pretty provocative imagery and illustration. And that's what we find in Ezekiel 16. We find the imagery of an unfaithful bride, and to say it up front, this is the most explicit text in Scripture. I know we got kiddos in here, so we're going to try to make that. Um, we'll be careful. Let's just say that. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 34. Let's jump into it. It says again, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem, that is, make known to my people her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped with swaddling clothes. No, no eye even pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born." But when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. 
When I passed by you again and saw you, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus... You were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown, and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, yet you set them, you set them before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters from whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughter my children and deliver them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and in all your whorings, you did not remember the day of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whorings. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whorings to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were actually ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea, And even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God. Because you did all these things, the deeds of the brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men gives gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your horns. So you were different from other women in your horns. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are different. Take a breath. I probably should say we're going to end on a nice note. (laughs) All right. Well, perhaps um, in this season, I don't know about you, but I catch myself binge watching stuff more than I I, I should, right? You got a little more downtime and there's all kinds of stuff online. So perhaps you've seen it on uh, Amazon Prime, I think it is, The World's Toughest Race. I love that kind of stuff. 
I love the survival, the outdoors races and all this kind of stuff. So the world's toughest race, of course, hosted by like the world's toughest guy, right? Bear Grylls, of course, like the survivor of survivors kind of a guy. Uh, but here this world's toughest race is all about these, it's miles and miles of some of the most difficult terrain from like ocean paddling to then kind of like, uh, you know, climbing through the jungle in the heat of the day to miles and miles of swimming through these canyons that are frigid and cold. And, and it's just miles and miles and miles at a time, days that these teams of four will, will go through all this terrain in little sleep, little rest, little food. And, and, and it becomes, as it said, the world's toughest. You are just waiting as you follow these people through this journey. You're waiting for them to break. Because from stage to stage, it like stuff only intensifies, right? And you're, you're, you're wondering, okay, when are they going to come to their limitation? When are they going to finally break? Will they break or will they triumph? And, and so what Bear Grylls does for you is he, he, you know, he pulls back so that there's this like panoramic shot of all, all the stages that they have to go through. And so he's following all these teams and surveying their process as they're going through all of this. And he's, he's, he's showing, oh man, you know, th here's this team that's really challenged in this particular way. You know, someone's almost on the verge of hyperthermia or here's, here's someone who's, who's got heat stroke and it looks like this team is going to finally reach their limits. So of course, as the audience, you're just always on the edge of your seat. Will these people break? Or will they triumph? Ezekiel 16 is nothing less than God surveying the journey that he has been on with his own people. And he's showing from moment to moment, snapshot to snapshot, just how difficult of a relationship this has been. And for the reader who's reading through Ezekiel chapter 16, yes, there's this rich metaphor of this unfaithful bride to her, who her God, you know, that, that is this relationship is being broken from moment to moment being broken, but it's God who is serving. He's serving all the challenges of this relationship. And as the reader, you're nonetheless doing the same thing. You're on the edge of your seat saying, Will God's love break or will it triumph? For any of us who've gone through difficult relational experience, we feel our love strained. We feel as though, oh man, my love would come to some point, some breaking point, some point where it's limited, some point where I have to let go. And so even as it relates to this rich metaphor that God is using, he's nonetheless surveying this journey of relationship with his people. And yes, you're, you're, you're forced to wonder, will God's love break or will it triumph? We could perhaps look at our own lives, the ups and downs of our relationship with God, and perhaps even in our own lives, we've had to stop and wonder, is his love really still there for me? Will it break or will it triumph for me? Well, Ezekiel 16 provides us just kind of uh, a few different stages of considering God's love that I want to invite you into as we take a survey, as we jump into what God is saying and take a survey of just the, the nature of God's love for his people. First, in, in verses 1 through 14, we see something of God saving love. God opens this historical survey of his relationship with his people by reminding them that he originally saved them from this paganism from this worldliness he states look at it in verse 3 he says for your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites your father was an Amorite your mother was a Hittite God's referring to how Jerusalem God's people didn't appear uh, from some sort of pristine background they didn't have some sort of grand reputation of heritage to, to put before others. It was actually quite the opposite, that really God's people were born out of a context 
of paganism, of worldliness. We, we know that the nation of Israel began with Abraham, but Abraham's parents were actually living in the context, in the area of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites. And you might say, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. But when you talk about Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites, these were enemies against God. These were the individuals who clearly defamed Yahweh's name. They didn't want anything to do with Yahweh. And if you trace even through the book of Genesis, what you, be, what you begin to see is that the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites were individuals, were a people given to what would have been demonic idolatry and sensuality. It's like the stuff that would define them is that, man, they were demonically inspired to be about all kinds of different egregious idolatry as well as all kinds of perverted sensuality. God is saying, this is the context that I rescued you from, right? And, he, and not only that, but, but he goes on to say that it, it, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the, the, the Amorites, they, they wanted nothing to do with you. They were ready to just cast you out on the open field for you to die, right? Like game over kind of thing. They wanted you dead. But what does God say in verse 6? While you're tossed out into a field like a little baby, the, the umbilical cord is uncut. There's, there's been no bathing. There's been no swaddling. There's been no care. There's been no compassion. You're left to die. Here comes God. And in his mercy, he declares to this little child who, who, who is more or less on its deathbed, he says, child, live. Stunning imagery that's being used here. It's a sheer act of mercy. If it wasn't for God, the people of Israel, Abraham's line, would have been easily snuffed out. It would have been just done with. But God steps in and he demonstrates an incredible mercy. He declares, live. It's imagery that, of course, if you know, like, as we jump into the New Testament, right, the reality that we live in today God will use in the New Testament very similar language. Remember Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you are following the prince of the power of the air. You were just given to your own passions and pleasures. You were spiritually, again, flatlined. Like you were left for dead. You were left for ultimate damnation. But... God, right, who is rich in mercy because of his love for us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does he do? He declares life over us. He makes us alive in Christ. He brings spiritual vitality and purpose to us. This is the love that God has shown to us through Christ. Now, as we look at Ezekiel 16, as the text goes on in verses 6 through 14, God will raise up this daughter that he has rescued. This young daughter, she becomes of age to marry. And in verse 8, God says, I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. It's here that God adorns his bride, his new bride, with all kinds of gifts and jewelry. And, and, and he gives her rich food and he, he gives her everything that she needs so that by verse 13, God says, you are royalty. You ain't just my bride, you are my queen. Right? You carry something not only of my gifts, but you carry something of my authority. Right? She is God's queen, rescued from the field, right? Rescued from death, and now raised up to be this beautiful bride, this incredible queen whose reputation becomes known throughout the world. It's incredible. But here in verse 15 is where everything turns. God has shown incredible mercy. God has bound himself to her in incredible marital love. He has supplied her everything. He has become her protector, her provider. But everything changes in verse 
15. It's almost as if the very thing that God has saved his bride from is what she goes seeking after. He saved her from the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites. He saved her from their ways. And yet, verse 15, it's as though though the things that he saved her from, she's now seeking after. And, And again, it leaves you, through this survey of God's interaction, it leaves you wondering, will God's love break? Will it come to its limitation? So let me just go through five different ways in which the bride rejected God's love. The first section is verses 15 and 16. God's bride gives herself to others. She's bound to Yahweh uh, in kind of royal matrimony, right? But verse 15, God states, you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown. It's as though she's become infatuated with her own beauty, a beauty, by the way, that came from God. God has granted her this beauty. He has given her such a grace. He's established her with such a renown before the nations of the world, but she becomes infatuated with her own beauty and begins then to give herself away to the very ones that God has saved her from, right? When it comes to God's blessings, it's to be very careful. God's blessings are no less a temptation than a lack of blessing from God. Here she is taking the very blessings of God and becoming infatuated with her own pleasures, her own comforts, her own stuff, and she is going out with all those pleasures and now giving herself away to the very ones that God has saved her from. Here God's people have turned away from God. God's serving, right? His relationship with his people. And he's saying, you turn from me. There are points along this where you just, you, you, you rejected my marital love, the most intimate kind of love that can be, and you rejected it for others. You've broken the marital bond. You've cons- you're just consumed with your own passions and pleasures. But then the second rejection And this is kind of the mounting from from step to step. It's things intensify. And again, you're wondering, is is God's love going to finally come to a limitation here? Because how can he endure such rejection? Verses 17 and 19, God's bride uses God's gifts to lust after others. And this is where we have to be careful. Verse 17, God states, You took my gold and my silver, You took the very gifts that I gave to you and you made for yourselves images of men and with them played the whore. This is graphic graphic, right? Even in our English, it doesn't get to what the Hebrew is actually saying. Literally, if I can be careful with this, God is saying that his people have melted down the very gold and silver that he has given them and shaped them into objects upon them which they are pleasuring themselves. That's what he's saying. You've taken my very gifts and you're, you're just wasting it upon your own pleasures. In this context, it's sexual pleasures as the metaphor is being played out. It's that you've taken my very gifts and now you're just satisfying yourself. You're just utilizing my gifts to you to lust, to create more lust, to satisfy more selfish pleasure as you lust after the images of men, other men. God is God's saying this is, this is demonic idolatry. Here these images of men are not only just kind of Um, objects of one's own satisfaction, right? But it's also these, I'm worshiping these things. These things are satisfying me in, in some way. And God's saying, that's the very demonic kind of idolatry that I saved you from. That's the kind of sensuality that I saved you from. So this is, this is, this is getting pretty crazy. But then there's rejection number three, verses 20 and 22. The bride sacrifices God's children unto the world. 
Like not only is the bride now taking the gifts and melting them down into objects to satisfy her own sensual pleasures, but now verse 21, God says, you delivered our children up as an offering of fire. The history of God's people, of course, yeah, they, they joined in with the Canaanite practices and a handful of times throughout this history of God's people, this literally happened. Children being offered to these pagan gods. And the point then that God is making here is you're not only rejecting my love, not only using my gifts in all the wrong ways, but now you're sacrificing our children. You're sacrificing the next generation. Literally or figuratively, you're sacrificing them to the very worldliness that I saved you from. That's the idea. You're not tending to the next generation. You're not teaching them Deuteronomy 6 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You haven't taught them to love me. You've actually sacrificed them to the very worldliness that I saved you from. There's an application in that for us, even for our own children, even for our own church family. Are we teaching our children the way of Christ or are we offering them upon the altar of worldliness? Saying it's okay to go find satisfaction here. It's okay to think that this is true or that is true or this is right or that's right to go pursue your own pleasures in these particular ways. No. While this took on a literal form throughout God's relationship to his people, there is a figurative application here as well. God sees it even when we fail to direct our children to him and he takes it personally. It's an assault upon his own love for us. So that's rejection three. It's like things are just getting worse. Not only is there this marital infidelity, not only has she taken these, these, these gifts that God has given her and, and, and just used them for her own uh, satisfaction, now she's offering up their children, right, to to this worldliness. And then rejection number four, verses 23 and 29. It's that God's bride publicly offers herself to others. Verse 23, it says this, after all your wickedness, like if all of this wasn't bad enough. Verse 24, you made for yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty square. Like, in other words, what he's saying is like, you've taken your whorings and you've gone public with them. Upon every corner of the city, what you've done is you've raised up these platforms, these platforms to publicly enjoy yourself with all of these other suitors. In other words, I mean, it's pornographic. Like, you've, you've gone public with this pornography. You've gone public with your infidelity. You are shameless in your way. God points out some of the examples of her suitors, like the ones that she's gone public with, right? In verse 26, it's a partnership with Egypt. In verse 28, it's a partnership with Assyria. In verse 29, it's a partnership with the Chaldeans. It's, it's that what God's people did over time is they sought protection and provision from all these other nations, and publicly so. While God had committed himself to be their protector and be their provider, they've gone public seeking that protection and that provision in all these other nations, Egypt, Assyria, and the Chaldeans, right? And, and what God sees of this, he just doesn't see, okay, well, you put your own wisdom in, in play here. He sees infidelity. And that's where we have to be careful. When it comes to sin, sin is not just some simple, easy, white lie kind of a thing. No, God sees it as an assault upon his love. He feels it as a rejection of his love. He carries in himself something of the agony of rejected love when we turn our back on him from the things that he would provide us and go seek them in other things. God says this has gotten so bad in terms of this 
public fiasco. He's saying it's gotten so bad such that verse 27, the Philistines, you ever hear anything good about the Philistines? It's like Goliath comes from that. It's a, it's a mess. Wherever you see Philistines, these guys are bad. They're the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Philistines, bad dudes. But verse 27, God says all of this has gotten so bad that even the Philistines, who are the worst, are shocked by what you're doing. Even the Philistines, the, the ungodly of the ungodly, right? They're looking at what you're doing and they are abhorred. They're, they're blushing because of what you're doing up on those stages at every you know, square in the, in the city. They're stunned. It, it refers, remember, uh, Paul will say to the church in Corinth, like some of these sexual sins should not even be named among you because they're not even named among like the Gentiles, like the unbelieving community. The world wouldn't even go as far as you're going. Right? You're putting the world to shame when I've shown you such incredible love. Is God's love going to break? Will it finally come to some sort of limit? Will God finally say, bride, you're done? Well, one more rejection. Verses 30 and 34. God's bride pays for partnership. You know, if the first four indictments were not enough, this infidelity, using God's gift for one's own selfish pleasures, if it's, if it's not then seeking other suitors in a, in, a, in a public way, if it's not sacrificing children, right? God says, you're actually paying. You're the one who's actually paying for these other suitors, verse 33, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you. God's people would just not be satisfied with God's love. That's why it's repeated uh, in verse 23 and following. You weren't satisfied, and you weren't satisfied, and you weren't satisfied, and you weren't satisfied. You just keep on going, even to the point of being willing to give payment to give away your love. It's just, it, and the language of the, we can't even get to the depths of the language of the text for how explicit it is. The lusting that's taking place here is, is explicit. And it's intended to be that because it's painting the picture of what really is all of our hearts. Our hearts are just not satisfied and we dream of better things than being satisfied with God's love. Right? Here she is paying for her lovers. She's paying for her lovers. But in the end what she will find is that this payment for her lovers only brings great consequence upon her. Will God's love break after all of this? Won't God just say, okay, we're done. We're done. Let's just put an end to this. I thought this was going somewhere. It's not. So let's just put an end to this. Let's just be done with this relationship. You can move on to your whorings and I can move on doing my God stuff. Will God's love break? Go all the way down to the end of the chapter. Verse 59. God states, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. In other words, he's saying uh, there's going to be consequences for what you've done. And he outlines some of that out in the section that we skipped. But notice verse 60. This is where the whole text comes to this culmination. After, after surveying this relationship and saying, okay, God's love has to come to a breaking point. It's got to come to a breaking point. It's got to come to, it's gotta come to a breaking point. You, you are stunned by what you get in verse 60. Yes, you're going to receive the consequences that, that you deserve because of the wrongdoing that has taken place, but yet, verse 60, 
I will remember my covenant with you. What? Right? You've got to be, no, 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 no. God's saying, I, I'm in it. I, I'm staying with you. I'm here for you. I'm not leaving. I'm all in. My love won't be withheld. My love won't be broken. No, I will remember my covenant with you. And I will, oh my goodness, establish for you an everlasting covenant. God's saying, I'm not going to just take you back, but I'm going to take you back forever. There is going to be no breaking of my love. My love will remain unbroken. And notice what he says in verse 62. He says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh. That is astounding terminology right here. Yahweh, of course, being that self-sufficient, self-existent one upon whom all his promises are founded. That is Nothing can rival this Yahweh God in his purposes and in his promises. He has founded his promises on the fact that he is the self-sufficient, self-existent one. He depends upon nothing, therefore he is moved by nothing, and therefore his promises, he says, are built on my name, Yahweh. It will not be moved. This covenant, this promise will be established so that you will know I am the Lord. I am immovable in my purposes and I am immovable in my love that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for all that you have done. Not only is God's love unbreakable, but in his love, it's as though he goes the added distance. He makes a promise to one day carry away their shame. They never have to open their mouth to somehow argue away the past that's happened. No, he says, your shame will be carried away. It will be taken away and I'll atone. That is, I'll, I'll, I'll be the penalty for all the wrongs that you have done. I will bring payment to all that you deserve. It's not just a love that remains unbreakable, but a love that ultimately triumphs over sin and it triumphs over shame. It, of course, doesn't excuse sin. God's not just kind of overlooking, oh, no, don't worry about it. He's saying, no, I'm going to step into all that is wrong here and based upon who I am, Yahweh God, I will triumph over it all in my love. This is ultimately where we see the cross, right? God is, is speaking. He's promising that one day shame and sin will be done away with. And so it's realized in Jesus such that even in 1 John chapter 4, it might be written this way. For herein is the love of God. Not that we loved God. In some sense, in many ways, we were the unfaithful bride, right? We, we were the, the, the one who is cast off laying on our spiritual, if you will, deathbed. We did not love God. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a propitiation, as the one who would make the final payment for all the wrongs we have done. Herein is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for us. Folks, this is where we can take hope. God's love is not dependent upon you. The promise of God's saving love is founded upon his own, his own name, Yahweh, right? It's who he is. He is immovable. He is unshakable. There is nothing that will rival his 
promised love, his redemptive love, such that in all of our frailty, in all of our weakness, even this week when we will be guilty as the unfaithful bride is of wandering away from him, wanting other things uh, than him, utilizing his very gifts for our own selfish satisfaction, even at times perhaps denying our children the very things that God desires for them. Maybe we're seeking protection and provision in other things, hoping that in this political climate, yeah, this is going to be our savior, and this is going to help us, and this is what's going to ultimately satisfy this whole corona business, and this is what will really bring hope to my heart. And when, when we go in all those wrong directions, God says, I have making, I have made in my love a provision for all of it such that my love will never waver but it will always be there for you to return to it will always be there for you to take hope in it will always be there for you to rest in this is the beauty of the gospel it's the beauty of god's love that in all of our frailty and all our weakness and all our sin, God's love remains. He doesn't look at our sin as something that's small and excusable, right? He sees it as something of what it is. It is a great agony to his heart, but in his love he has made every satisfaction through what Christ has done for us. So, Will God's love break or will it triumph? Of course, it is unbreakable. Not only is it unbreakable, but it is a love that triumphs. Now, I have to, I have to end with this particular text from the New Testament. So good, that is. James 4. He says, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? just as the unfaithful bride was, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so what do you do? You murder. <laughs> you covet, you're unsatisfied, and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask it wrongly, just to spend it on your own passions. You, you just want God's gifts for your own selfishness. James says, you adulterous people, you unfaithful bride, do you not know that friendship, and friendship is not just a pat on the back, hey friend, friendship is an intimacy. Do you not know that intimacy with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world actually makes himself an enemy of God. Are you disposed, or, 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 or or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you? See what's being said here? The church is the bride. It's picking up on all the metaphor language of Ezekiel 16. The people of God is the bride. And, and, and so what we have here is a, is a bridegroom who's so jealous, who's so jealous to see us enjoy and walk in the goodness of his love. Not in our own passions, not taking his gifts for our own selfish reasons. But No, he says... Ah, he is jealous for us. But notice this, in all our weaknesses and all our, even when we kind of fold and we go after the world and we seek hopes here and there, no, notice what James says. It's incredible. But God gives more grace. Even when you've sought the world, even when you've utilized God's gifts for your own selfish pleasure, it's an incredible statement. But God gives more grace. He gives more love. His love is not broken. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he, he's teaching us. He's saying, okay, you, you want to know this love? You want to return to your bridegroom? Well, humble yourselves because there is love. There is grace to be found. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Oh, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, for he gives 
more grace. Folks, this is the reality of our God. When we have failed, when we have gone astray, when we have used his own gifts for our own selfish purposes, when we have even in some ways failed to point our children to the goodness of this love, when we have actually paid the price to actually go after our own selfish wants and desires, well, there is a God who is still there, yes, bearing the agony of rejected love, but in his love saying, come, there is grace for you. There is an unbreakable love that triumphs through Christ on our behalf. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not left us in our spiritual death. As we were cast out into the field, you came after us. You had mercy upon us. It would have been right for you to have left us on our own, in our own pursuits, in our own pleasures, in our own desires, but you saved us from all of that, and you saved us to your unbreakable love. God, we thank you that in Jesus, in Jesus, there is salvation from shame and salvation from sin. No sin being too great for your mercy. No shame that is so great that it can't be covered by your righteousness. Jesus, what a savior you are. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray, I pray that even now, as we, as we would kind of weigh our own hearts, where our hearts have just kind of got carried away in different ways from, from true affection towards you, and we've given our affection away to other things. We've sought saviors, protectors, and providers in other things. Holy Spirit, even right now, we would just open up our hands and, and repent. We'd humble ourselves. Say, Lord, we... We want to know your grace again. We want to know your love again for all the ways in which we've rejected your love. All the ways that you've suffered the pain, the agony of that rejected love. We ask for your forgiveness. Trusting that through your forgiveness there is a fresh ocean of your love to be known and to be experienced. Thank you, God, for your incredible love to those who are undeserving. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
Um, as we close, instead of a benediction, um, just felt a, maybe, maybe for more folks in our congregation, this isn't altogether familiar language, but just a few words of knowledge. Just as I was praying, I felt like the Lord was bringing certain things uh, to mind that I think as we close, we should probably just spend a moment praying into. Um, first, it was just, um, first was just kind of an overwhelming, dark discouragement. Um, perhaps even in some ways, um, you know, the enemy working to just keep that cloak of darkness over someone. There is just kind of deep discouragement. You may not even, that discouragement may not even be connected to specific events or circumstances, but it's, it just seems like a, a cage of discouragement, a dark cage of discouragement that you find yourself in. So we want to we wanna pray for you. And, and again, I would just emphasize that if any of this kind of maps on to you, if you feel like, oh yeah, that, that was for me, um, I'd, I'd ask that maybe in some way you just, you'd, you'd reach out to us and, and let us know so that we can continue in prayer, specifically if you're online with us. Um, so dark discouragement was, was one thing. Another thing was like an, an anxiety with, that was causing stomach problems. Um, so, and again, the specifics of the anxiety, I'm not, I'm not sure of, but just Lord just brought to mind just kind of uh, anxieties that were creating just plenty of health issues, namely that it relates to the, to the stomach. Um, and, then, and then finally, uh, oh, the Lord is just saying, hey, I gave you more. Um, I sometimes get, um, yeah, kind of just frustrated with the, the simple things, uh, but I think God, God's just saying, hey, I want to show my love in simple ways. Um, so I'm just going to go through the list that I feel like you gave me. Uh, uh, lower back, right lower back pain um, that I feel like the Lord brought to mind. Um, a right knee that's perhaps a bit swollen, doesn't bend very easy, lots of pain. Uh, and a left shoulder that actually has quite a bit of burning and uh, range of motion has been um, kind of hindered in some ways. Um, so again, if any of that kind of relates to you, um, again, these, this is all done in part. Uh, what the impressions that we think are from the Spirit aren't always. <laughs> so as we try to make sense of those things, uh, as Paul says, it's all done in part. Uh, but we want to trust that the Spirit does work in these kind of ways, and at times, um, as he would impress these things upon our hearts, that he also has the grace to just relieve pain and bring, bring healing. So just want to end by just praying in, into some of these things. God, thank you that uh, your love is not just some statement, not just some statement in a book, it's not just black and white pages that say something of an incredible love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're, you're with us even right now, that your love is so meticulous and so detailed. Thank you, Jesus, that you, like, you know us from the bottom of our feet to the top of our head. You know everything. You know the number of hairs you've placed upon our head. This is not something in which you, you just declare your love and are somehow disconnected, knowing your love, you are altogether connected, knowing us in all of our frailties and in all of our weaknesses. And so even right now, God, we pray that in Jesus' name, the one or those who are suffering from that dark uh, discouragement, God, by your spirit, would you lift it? We come against the enemy and we come against him in the authority of Jesus Christ and we declare that light would shine in darkness, that the glory of Christ would be known amidst such in, uh, discouragement, that something of uh, the trueness, the, the, the true experience of, of Christ, your love, would be, would be known to your children. Um, and we, we declare in Jesus' name that discouragement, that this, that this darkness um, has no place for your children. So God, I pray that you would break the bars, break the bars, bring light to the darkness. And would you bring something of just a well of encouragement by your love into the discouragement that is being experienced. God, I pray, I pray um, for, for the one who, who feels that this might be them. Um, 
I think the Lord would say from uh, Joel chapter 3, it, it declares, let the weak say I am strong. Let the weak say I am a mighty warrior. And, and not, not as those, it's some sort of self-help declaration. It's, it's because you are seated in Christ. You are given strength. You are given grace because of Christ. You are a mighty warrior. You are more than a conqueror. Not because of your own sense of self-esteem, but you are a mighty conqueror because of a love that will not be broken. Neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities can separate you from the love of God. It's in the love of God that you become a conqueror. And so it's upon that love that you might declare, oh, let the weak say, I am strong. Strong in the love of Christ, strengthened in the love of Christ, tended to in the love of Christ. So God, bring light to that darkness, break the bonds of that discouragement, we pray. And God, for the one who has anxiety and having physical issues because of that, God, we know that you bring common grace you're so good that science is something that you've given to us and medicine is something that you've given to us. It's a, it's a rich grace. Uh, but where there's even limitations there, God, we thank you that your grace can go beyond it. You can bring healing. So even for the one who is suffering from this anxiety, God, uh, would you banish that fear? There's a sense that that fear has like no, connect, like no even circumstantial connection. It just it's not even logical, but it's felt in all of its fury. So God, I pray that you would grant peace. You are the one who brings shalom. You are the one who brings harmony. So God, whether it's issues within the body or whether it's just a mind that is racing and exhausted and overwhelmed with anxiety, God, would you grant something of shalom? Would you grant something of peace now by your spirit? We bless, what you're, we bless what you're doing right now, Holy Spirit. We bless you. We bless you. You act, and we want to bless you. We want to even give, 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 give faith-filled gratitude for what you're accomplishing, even in these moments. And God, thank you that you know us <laughs> up and down um, so that even when we feel lower back pain or we're, our, our right knee is a bit swollen and isn't, uh, working correctly, or whether a shoulder is not functioning rightly. God, thank you that you care. You care. You are not one who just says, get by. Uh, you're a God who says, come to me, come to me, come to me. And again, we thank you for all the therapies and therapists and all the, the common graces that go along with that. But we thank you that you care. You care for us in all of our pains, our soul pains, our heart pains, our body pains. So God, I, I pray that you would bring relief. And I pray that you would bring relief so that those who are suffering in these particular ways might use their body as it's been given to you to, to be utilized to glorify your name. Maybe it's in different relief efforts. Maybe it's just in the workplace that, that there's a testimony to be brought there. Maybe it's to bring good things to those in need, whatever it is, that as you would bring healing to the body, that it would be a healing that would also uh, kind of stimulate something of good works towards others. So God, we just, we, we thank you. You care, you care. We just, we, we, we rest in, in that reality. You care for us. You're so good care for us. Your love is unbreakable. It is unshakable. And oh, we look forward to day when it fully triumphs in all of its glory. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace to you all online. Thanks for being with us.